starting a new series today. Uh, what is the name of the series? It's Charis. If you're unfamiliar with that word, it's really about the Holy Spirit. Actually, means gift, and we'll get into that later on. But the idea of this series is the maybe the offset tagline: of Holy Spirit, come. We really wanted to start to delve into and understand the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you're not familiar with the church, every summer we try to teach on something of a doctrinal value. We try to give you some meat during the summer that you can chew on, that you can study on, and that you can get involved in the Word and in the Scripture on. You know, there's different times of the year we preach on different things for different reasons. Sometimes we preach on exciting and happy and jovial messages, and other times we preach on messages about going out and winning your world and connecting with people and a sense of evangelism, and other times we have to preach something that's more along a doctrinal line, a doctrinal stance. And so that's what we're doing over the next couple of weeks here. And so I'm going to start with a framework of, of kind of where we're going to go, what we're expecting out of this series. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 16. We're going to read 16, verse 17 and 18. And these are the words of Jesus. And so these are the words that should matter to us. These are, these are the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the guy that we built this whole thing called Christianity around. The Bible, if you're not familiar, Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. That means he's the anointed one. It's a phrase to say that he is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus the anointed one. That might be a shocker for some of you that when someone says Jesus Christ, they're not saying his whole name. That's not how his mother referred to him, even though your mother might have referred to you that way. He's really... Nobody caught that? Oh, man. <laughs> a bad pastor joke, I know. I've got a ton of, I've got a ton of them. Uh, but they're really talking, uh, she's really, in, in that phrasing, we're really talking about his anointedness, his, his, his exalted state here in this world. So we're talking about the words of a man who is claimed by an entire religion that he is anointed, that he is exalted, that he is above all. So these words should matter. In verse 17, it says this, these signs will accompany those who believe. And what is he talking about? Those, these signs will accompany those who believe in him. Those who claim that they are Christians, those who claim that they are under that banner of Christ, these signs will follow them. In my name, they'll cast out demons, they'll speak with other tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them, and they will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Now let's unpack this for a second. So Jesus, the anointed one, this exalted one, says this phrase, if you believe in me, in my name, he's giving you the authority, the stamp of the authority of the name of Christ. It's, it's as if there was written to you a check and the signature at the bottom gives the authority for that check to be cashed. If you had a million dollar check in your hand but there was no signature on it, it'd be a hard job to try to get that check cashed. That's called fraud. But the moment that signature is at the bottom, you can take that check to the bank and, tr and, and make that transaction. So whatever number is in the little box, now you receive in cash value because of the signature. And the same way Jesus is saying here, in my name, the first thing he says is, cast out demons. So there's a reality to life that there is a, a power, a negative power, an evil power that wants to overcome and overtake life. In fact, it's so, it's so mischievous that it can affect our body to the extent that it has to be removed. And Jesus says, in its removal, you can remove this negative power, this negative entity, what we call demons or devils, by the authority that's in my name. Then he says, you'll speak in other tongues. 
this might blow your mind, but there's a language in heaven that's not known here on earth, and that when it's spoken, it is literally, as Paul describes, the tongue of angels, and that God pulls back the curtain and allows us to see the secret nature of heaven for a moment, for a split second, and he says, in his name or in his doing or by his authority, you'll have the right to even speak in this heavenly language, and then he moves on and says, you'll take up serpents or drink any deadly poison. He says, listen, if anything negative would be, uh, would to come against your life, if there's any plot of the enemy to take you out, if there's anything out there, a weapon that could be weaponized to move you off of God's God-given directive for your life, you could take it up, you could drink it, you could take that poison, you could take up that serpent, and it will by no means hurt you. And then he says, and you and they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Everything Jesus says here is by virtue of the authority of the name of Christ, in my name, you will do these things. But he says it in a definitive fashion. These signs aren't the maybe question mark could follow those that believe. In this verse, he's stating emphatically, these signs will follow those that believe. In my name, these things will happen. Now, the disciples were wondering, how is this ever going to come true? Jesus, we've seen you do the miraculous. We've seen you cast out devils. We've seen you heal sick bodies. We have seen the miraculous in your life, yet in our life, we got tested a few times. And it didn't always work out the way we wanted to. In one portion of Scripture, you see them run out and cast out devils. And it works. Like, wow, they come back to Jesus and they say, listen, we did exactly what you said. We cast the devil out in your name. It worked. In another portion of scripture, the devil responds back to them. I, I, I'm not a different, different set of people, but I don't know you. I know these others, these other heroes of faith, but you, I don't know. There's a divide. Those that follow Jesus closely understood the authority that was carried in his name. And when they marched out with his orders, they were able to accomplish what he set them to do. But later on, this started to fade a little bit. And folks started to get the idea that the name of Jesus was somehow a magic lamp. And if they rubbed it, they would just get the wishes and wants that they were after. Yet it didn't work. And a few men got beat up because of it. You can search that out for yourself in the scriptures. See, the fact is that there's, a, there's an impasse in the middle. There's those who knew the authority and nature of Christ, and then as it bled down through one generation after another of Christians, eventually got boiled down to just saying something out of their mouth and hoping against hope that their circumstances would change, and when it didn't, they didn't understand where the gap was, and the gap lies in the person of the Holy Spirit. We forget so often, and I think the church does maybe does a poor job of teaching as much as it should, the impactful nature of the Holy Spirit. That he is the gift giver. That he gives sovereignly gifts to all men. That he gives into your life a gifting, an endowment of power that gives you the ability to hang on these words of Jesus and to see it actually happen in your life. The Bible tells us that we're to be zealous for the gifts, and that there's even greater gifts that come. First, First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31. I'm not sure if this one's up here. I kind of wrote this in a little later, uh, but it's gonna it's it's gonna parallel really nicely with First Corinthians chapter 14, which we'll get to later. 
And he says, by, uh, by now a more excellent way, I will show you that we should be zealous for the gifts and that there's a more excellent way to live this Christian life and that we can live in this space that Jesus carved out in Mark chapter 16, that we can learn to live in a supernatural state where when we speak and when we do things and when we activate the Spirit's gifting in our life, that the miraculous literally happens. And later, Paul calls this a more excellent way that he would show us. That there's a way to live life around church around Christendom that's good, it's sacred. We come to church, we go through the motions of, at times, communion. We go through the motions of giving. We sing our songs. Everything about it is good. It develops you as a person, but it isn't showing off the tremendous power that's hidden in the person of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't show off what it is for us as believers to understand the full virtue and power of the Holy Spirit. So in order for us to really understand this, we've got to unpack a little bit of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. Scott referenced 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 11 here, and then he shifts the tide. Paul shifts the tide in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. This is where we get the foundation for a lot of what we call the spiritual gifts and or offices that God would give folks. So he's endowing us with power and station. He gives us a station, a way of living or being in his church, and then he gives you power to accomplish that which he's called you to do. So how does this kind of flesh out? Well, structurally in 1 Corinthians, chapter 12 is about the body of Christ, you and I the body of Christ, the people of God, coming together, fellowshipping together, connecting together, that we are interdependent on one another. Then in the middle of his discourse, Paul throws in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a poem that is all about love. And you might think Paul's schizophrenic. Here he is writing about the church and its orders, and then later in chapter 14, he's going to talk about the church at worship, what a church in a worshipful setting should look like. Yet in the middle of the two, he sandwiches chapter 13, this idea of love, because love is not our duty, it's our destiny. Now on planet Earth, the reason Paul writes this incredibly poetic verse on love is when we approach the idea God's power, of his endowment, when we approach the concept of living in the space, of forming the practice as Jesus did, we don't get a kilter. The whole reason we do it is out of a virtue of love. That the whole reason Jesus sent people out to free people from the practice was humanity. The whole reason he sent folks out to heal the sick was because he loves humans so very much. The whole reason that Jesus said, I give the power of my name that you could live in the miraculous is because he loves this planet so dearly. We forget that his motivation and his sole motivation, even the miraculous, is love. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to break down the scripture a little as well. I know it might be much for some of you, a little more like class time. It's okay. Sometimes we need to learn something. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 to 11, we have this structure, this idea that the same spirit is at work within all of us. That there's one spirit at work within the church, within the body, within the group of believers that are called Christians. Verse 21 through 26, 
is the idea of uh, the responsibility that each member has one for another, that I have a responsibility to you and you have a responsibility to me, that we are interdependent on one another's giftings and callings. We'll get into this a little bit later. Verse 27 through 31a is the gifts and ministries that we are all placed in the body for a purpose. church, that you are designed to be in a station so that we can link arms and that this linking of arms creates a chain. And this chain is a network of believers so that we can go out and accomplish the miraculous for God. In 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 31b, the second half of that verse, through chapter 13, 7, is all about the need for love and the character of love to be the guiding principle. So there's the rough sketch of what we're learning what we're, what we're really going to focus in on today. This rough sketch that each of us have a goal and a passion and a moving in our heart to perform the miraculous. And everybody has it. Once you become a Christian, once you hear the miraculous deeds of Jesus, there's a part of our heart that says, I hope that's true. And if it is true to some degree, I hope that I can experience it. And if I could experience it, then maybe even I could get good enough someday that at the works of my hands, at the prayers from my mouth, that I could see the miraculous happen. Now, many of us discount ourselves because we don't know the scriptures, but there's that longing that comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life that says you can do the miraculous, that you can be that person that opens up heaven, that shows the people what heaven is really like, and so that they can experience God at a at a new level. This is what it's really about, that we would understand that as Paul is teaching, he's bringing a heaven to earth concept. Just as Jesus prayed, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was anticipating his followers bringing heaven to earth, that those that believe in him would bring a sense of his glory, his power, and his purpose here to planet earth. And because of that, we're set up with a word, a word that is, and this word has been fought over so many different ways. This word is basic, basically the title for our series. It's the Greek word charisma or charismata, where we get the word charismatic. It's a word that has been contested time and time again. It's a word that's used throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a word that's used to teach people that there are giftings given. It's simply in its definition is a gift or a gift of grace. It's sovereignly distributed, and it's given by sovereign grace, that God sovereignly distributes gifts to his people. He does it by his will and his intention. And as he gives gifts, this is a gift of grace. He doesn't have to give you what he's given you. Think of on a Christmas morning when you have your kids all piled around a Christmas tree and there's a mound of presents and you start to hand out one gift after another to the children. You don't hand them all the same thing. You don't hand them all a blue pair of socks because one kid likes blue, one kid likes green. You don't hand them all the same gift. You try to portion it out so that the child receives something that they are interested in. They receive something that they like. They receive something that resonates with their heart. They receive something they wanted and or needed. In the same way, this word charismata or charism is talking about the idea that Christ would give to us gifts that fit our life. In the most intricate detail, he knows what you need. Later on, we'll, lift, we'll list out the nine gifts of the Spirit. But if he were to give you 
wisdom, because you need wisdom, the gift of wisdom. If he were to give you the gift of faith, it's because you need faith. If he were to give you the gift of healing and watch it be manifest in your life, it's because you need to exercise that gift of healing, not just for yourself, but for the people around you. Many times, again, we look at the framework of the gifts a little bit off kilter, and we think, well, if God's going to endow me, it must be for me first. No, if God gives you a gift, it's for you second and the world around you first. It's always meant to be that way. Christ died not for himself first, but he died so that he could reap the harvest, which was you and I, that he could save us from our sin, that we could find heaven as our home when this life is over. But that was his primary mission, his secondary mission. Of his destiny. It's a fulfilling of his duty, what he was called to do. That's why he did it. Jesus was fulfilled in and of himself just because he was God. He didn't need to go to the cross to find a sense of fulfillment. Yet so many people take on the gift of the Spirit, place it in what God has brought them to, a level of life or, or working where God has brought them to, and that is what is that is what they're trying to get fulfillment out of. You are never meant to get fulfillment out of any aspect of the gifts that God will give to you of the charismata, of the, of the gifts God would place in your life. That's not to bring you fulfillment. Your fulfillment is in Christ and him alone. But that gift, when it's exercised, now starts to bring about a change in the lives of the people around you. This is why Paul, in his structuring of 1 Corinthians, teaches us that we are interdependent on one another. Because if I issues, I guarantee you that someone else needs wisdom for their issues, and that if I know a brother or a sister in our community of believers is endowed, given a gift of wisdom, that's who I go to when I need wisdom. If I know that someone is gifted in healing, that when they pray for people, miracles literally happen, people literally become healed, that when I'm sick, I know who to go to. One gift is not above another. If another brother or sister is gifted in prophecy, and when I need a word from God to lift me up, to help me show the, the different options in the station of life that I'm in, to help build up my soul so I can make it another day, I know to go to that person who's gifted in the prophetic so that they can speak the words of God into my heart to build me up so that I can make it through the next week. These gifts, they are sovereignly distributed. You can't in any way, shape, or form express a gift lest God gives it to you. Listen, no one here, and I don't care who you prayed with, and I hope, I hope you understand this, no one here has a gift that they have somehow worked hard enough to get. Randy and the healing team, they pray for people all the time to get healed. Randy has not done enough spiritual calisthenics to just be gifted with healing. It's not because of all the studying he did. He was gifted before that. It's not because he prays 24-7, although Randy is a man of prayer. I don't think he prays that much, though. It's not because he's perfect. Ask Dina. He's gifted of the Holy Spirit so that I know that when people have physical ailments in their body, I can be confident as a body of believers to say, Randy, your team, you pray for this person. 
Because the gifting of God has been manifest in their life. Now, he trusts God enough to study it. He trusts God enough to operate in it. He trusts God enough and even trusts himself enough to actually lay hands on someone and have an expectation that their situation is going to change. All of the trust value has been built up over many, many, many years of exercising the gift, but it's there not because Randy's a superstar, even though we love him. It's there. It's there simply because God wants to invest that spirit from heaven through Randy as a conduit into the lives of the church. This is what it is to be gifted. This is what it is to live out these scriptures in 1 Corinthians. So let, let's keep moving. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. And verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. This is Paul, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This is the guy who spoke five languages, could write in three of them. He's probably the most intelligent person in the Bible that we know of, in my opinion. Maybe not the wisest, but definitely the most intelligent other than Jesus. And he writes these words. He says, okay, church, speaking to a church like us, we're going to talk about something that's of a supernatural value. Remember those words Jesus said about how you were going to take his name, and in his name you're going to cast out devils, you're going to take up serpents, it's not going to hurt you, they're going to speak in other tongues. Remember all that supernatural stuff that he talked about that those early disciples got to see and live in to some degree? I'm going to teach you how it works every single day of your life. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts, the charismata. You should know what that means. You should have an understanding. When someone says, I have a spiritual gift of X, Y, and Z, it shouldn't freak you out. It shouldn't scare you. When someone mentions the, the, the idea or the concept of speaking in tongues, you shouldn't want to run and hide in the other room. Now, let me be honest. I come from a really loud family. My mom's Mexican. My dad's German. These are pretty two loud groups of people, right? We come from a weird family because my dad was a chiropractor. And chiropractors, in a general sense, are kind of weird, right? The holistic vibe, right? There's some things that have happened around charismatic churches. Even though I'm loud and come from kind of a maybe weird, not, con not conventional family, there's some stuff that happens in charismatic churches that scares the snot out of me. I mean, people act in goofy ways, and I'm thinking, where did this come from? You know, barking dogs and all kinds of weird things. Listen, there's weirdness that happens that people will claim and say is the Holy Spirit. I don't know if it always is. I know this. If we shut down the gifts of the Holy Spirit because one person acts weird, we limit forever what God can do in our life. That's why Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant. He didn't say, I don't want you to be ignorant so you could put it on a shelf and never use it, right? Some of us use encyclopedias that way. We bought those big volumes back in the 80s, maybe even the 70s, and it's, it's information so that we're not ignorant, yet we just place it on a shelf and we never skim through the books. Paul didn't expect that. Paul expected that you would take what he's teaching you and use it in your daily life. So let's get to this next point. Paul brings out two or three very, very specific points here. In verse 4 through verse 6, he says there are gifts, there are ministries, and there are effects. He says it this way. 
Now there are a variety of gifts or different types of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all people. He does not expect you all to act the same. Different effects. We may pray for one person, right? The, the effect of the spirit might be that person goes down like a ton of bricks. You've seen it maybe even parodied in some parodies of charismatic churches. Someone lays hands on them and they're like, oh, they just fall out, right? Paul didn't say that was wrong. He says there's effects. They're different for different people. Some person might stand there stoic while they're praying for them and not move a muscle. Tense the whole time. Not necessarily because the Holy Spirit isn't there. Maybe that's God and the effect of God in their life, and we're not to judge that. Then he moves on, and he says that there are ministries with the same Lord, that God will set you into ministry. He will give you a title, prophet, pastor, evangelist, apostle. He'll give you a title, an endowment of a title to go do the work of the ministry in our local, in our, in our local uh, uh, spheres of influence. He does that because he is one Lord affecting. Lord of the chessboard, where he gets to move the pieces as he directs. And then he says in the beginning that there are different types of gifts, but the same spirit. We don't have to worry just because one person has one gift and another person has another gift. We don't have to worry of whether or not one is in the right and one is in the wrong. If I have a brother who has the gift of prophecy and he's prophesying and there's another brother who has the word of knowledge and he's impressed of God for a particular situation and gives knowledge to that situation that comes from heaven, neither of the two should be in competition. They're there because the effects of the ministry, the gifts that God's given them, have a place and a purpose of interdependency within the body. And then he says this in verse 7. It's really interesting. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual things. There are different types of gifts. There's different types of ministries. There's different type of effects or manifestations. And then he says, every manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good. We are not to judge how people freak out when the Holy Spirit hits them. There are so many churches that judge this. Well, this one shook and this one did that. You know the Quakers back in the day, that, that religious group, the Quakers? When the Holy Spirit came into their churches, the Bible, or I'm sorry, history records that they used to like shake and tremble and that people thought they were quaking, hence the term Quakers. Shaking like there was an earthquake, they were quaking. That was how the Holy Spirit was moving at the time in that group of people. Did some of them learn it because they saw somebody else next to them quake and they thought, well, that's the religious thing to do, so I'm gonna start shaking too. Yeah, I'm sure there was some of that. But some of them were endowed with the Spirit and the Spirit of God moved in their life and caused a, triggered a bodily reaction that maybe they couldn't control. Now, here's the fact of the matter. You can control anything that happens in your life when the Spirit is on you. You can decide to shut it off anytime you want to. I don't care how the Holy Spirit is moving in your life. He's not a possessive power like a demon. He's not going to force you to do anything, but he may impress on you in such a way that your physical body doesn't necessarily understand how to handle it. And the Bible says we're not supposed to judge those issues. Move on to verse 8. It says there's a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, faith, gift of healing, the effecting of miracles, prophecy, the distinguishing of spirits, various kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. So this is really important. This is where Paul lays it out. He says what? They're gifts, 
And he goes on to explain what some of those gifts are. That you can be endowed from heaven with supernatural wisdom. That you can be given a word of knowledge for a situation. A knowing of a situation that couldn't come from anywhere but heaven. That you can have faith. Faith that literally rises up within you. A faith to pursue and to go after what God has for you that you didn't work for. That you didn't garner on your own. It just kind of shows up because the presence of God is so big. A gift of healing that we can pray for people and expect them to be healed. Again, reminiscent of the words of Jesus. You lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. He goes on to say that there are different types of miracles that we can see the affecting, the working of the miraculous and that there's prophecy, that we can look and distinguish between certain types of spirits How many of you have ever walked into a room and you felt something just wasn't right or you met that person for the first time and you felt something about their spirit? That's the distinguishing of spirits, the understanding of the spirit that's present. And he moves on and says there's various kinds of tongues. As as Jesus said, you'll speak in other tongues. And then there's interpretation. Those that hear the words from heaven, they hear that heavenly language and all of a sudden it's somehow computed and translated in their brain and their heart and out comes the words in the proper context and language for the group they're speaking to and everybody, everybody is built up because of what was spoken. These aren't things to be scary or skeptical about. These aren't things to wonder about. Is it for us today or isn't it? In fact, if we read on to verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills or just as he determines. That the spirit of God will endow you with gifts from on high. These gifts will work and operate in your life, not because the Holy Spirit is a possessive power, but because he's an encouraging power. And he will bring you to a place where the gift will function in full development within your life, where you can have confidence that it's not 100% of the time, but you can have confidence that the Spirit is with you. And that when the Spirit of God is with you and he is manifesting one of these gifts, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that is God at work within your mortal flesh, causing you to affect change in the lives of those around you. And that same spirit, that spirit of God, that Holy Spirit from heaven, he distributes the gifts to each individual, not to the church as a whole. There's not a prophecy church. There's not a faith church. There's not a healing church. Each individual as he wills. This is where the church has screwed up beyond belief, in my opinion. We have segregated churches and said, okay, if you're gifted in faith, you should go to that church. If you're gifted in healing, you should go to that church. If you really are into the prophecy vibe, then you should go to the church across the river. The problem is Paul saw it that all the gifts would be in operation under one roof and that under one roof, we would all learn as God wills to trust each other with the gifts that he's given us. Again, You need a word of encouragement. You need to know that when you come in that back door, there are people empowered of God with a prophetic word to speak right to your situation. You need to know that when you walk in that door, and it should be for every church in America, but when you walk through that door, there is someone who is endowed by the Spirit of God with healing, and that if you are sick, they will lay hands on you, as Jesus said, and you will recover. We need to know that the church itself is a miraculous organism, that it can't truly do its job and function appropriately apart from the miracle presence of the Holy Spirit via the words of Jesus. 
So let's go over again the structure that we have in 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, uh, verse 1 through 11. The same spirit is at work. All of these gifts, the same spirit. That we don't judge one another. That we don't judge each other. That we don't wish for something that isn't ours, but it's gifted to our brother. That we don't hope that our gift is better than our brother's. It's the same spirit working that we would all have our place in the body. 12 through 26, responsibility of every member, that we have responsibilities to operate within what God has called us to do. 27 through 31, the ministry gifts. Does everyone have the same gift? No. Is everyone going to experience everything the same? No. There are going to be things one person experiences that you might not. There are going to be aspects of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that you might experience instantly and others it may take a lifetime. That's up to God and his sovereign distribution. Verse 31b through 13, chapter 13 and 7, that all of this is needed to be built around a characteristic of love, that we do all of this. We express the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not because we're trying to elevate ourselves above someone, not because we're trying to show off, but because of the unadulterated love that God has for humanity. If you have your Bibles, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31. Be zealous for the gifts, the greater gifts. And now by a more excellent way, I will show you. This is Paul teaching a group just like us as he's coming to an end portion of his structure of how these gifts should operate and manifest and work in the church. He says, you should be zealous. First he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Then he goes through his dissertation and at the end says, you should seek after and be zealous for these gifts. We don't understand the word zealous in our culture. There's a Japanese word that focuses very much on this meaning. It's the word otaku. Otaku is actually a derogatory term. When somebody is so into like anime, they're the kind of that big nerd, and they just dress in anime garb. They have the anime backpacks. If you know what anime is, it's cartoons in, in Japanese culture. They can't do anything but read an anime book. They're otaku. They are, they are wrapped up in the culture of anime. In the same way, we see here Paul is saying, you need to be wrapped up in your search for the gifts. You need to be zealous for the gifts, even the greater gifts. That there's a gift in how all of this works out that's the pinnacle of the gifts. It's the top tier. We'll learn about that later. That there's a more excellent way that we should live this Christian life, and the more excellent way that he's trying to show us is the empowered nature of the Holy Spirit. That we have gifts that God has given us that empowers us to be who we're created to be. Paul teaches, Paul's, I'm sorry, Paul's teaching on gifts must tie into three levels. It has to kind of focus in at three levels the office and the giftings, what you're called to do and how he's empowered you, the body that we function interdependently, and finally, the love of Christ is our motivator. Anytime these two are off kilter, anytime or these three are off kilter, anytime these three are not in their proper placement, we will function inappropriately, and I guarantee you the Spirit of God is not there. You might say beautiful words, you might have wonderful prayers, you might even operate in a way that looks miraculous, but if the love of God isn't the motivator, if you are not interdependent in your body, and if you do not understand your office and your gifting, where God has placed you and how he's empowered you, you are not going to operate in that gifting. You're not going to operate in the sense of the Holy Spirit as God intended you to. It's not going to work out the way you're expecting. 
So there are many times there are folks standing on the sidelines going, I'd love to do maybe what Randy does, or I'd love to do what the prayer team does, or I'd love to see my life empowered like I see some of these other supercharged Christians empowered. Yet have you gone back to the rules? Have you gone back to the three steps? Is your motivation love, first and foremost, your love for your church, your love for humanity, your love for those around you? Do you understand that you are interdependent in the body, that you can't just pull yourself out and walk away when you want to? Listen, this isn't a hot dog stand. You don't pay your tithe and walk away with something just because you feel like it. This is an investment in a community and a family, and that's what Paul was anticipating. And then once you understand that your motivation is love and that you are directed to be part of the body, a puzzle piece that fits, that God then says, you need to understand the calling that I've called you to, and you need to understand the gifting that I've given you. 1 Corinthians 14, clarification how all this should work in the local church. In verse 12 and 14, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gift, of gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Paul says in his closing statements, as he's getting near the end of how he's setting up the structure after he's packed and sandwiched in that poem of love, he says, I need to point out something very real. Once you become zealous, once you become fever-pitched for the gifts of God, seek an abundance of edification for the church, that every one of us would be edified, that our lives would be built, that we would stand on sure footing, that our lives would stand on a very strong rock because the gifts are in operation. I believe in my whole heart that once the gifts are in full operation in church, the members of that church are more strong and more stable than any other religious organization on the planet. How could you not be? Once you've seen a person pray and the miraculous happen, it gives you a sense of strength that you can't give if you've never seen that type of miracle. Once you've experienced a prophetic word spoken directly to your situation, when that person doesn't know you and doesn't know what you're going through, it empowers you to know that the God you're serving is real, that he is interested in every aspect of your life. When you receive a word of wisdom and it causes you to bypass the pain that you would have otherwise run into, it helps us solidify in our heart that Jesus is real and that he loves me and that he's there for me. I believe in my whole heart that when these gifts are in full operation, the church is at her strongest point. The problem is we fought doctrinally for too long and we said, well, this gift doesn't apply for today and this is how this gift is supposed to work and this gift was cut off after the disciples and the apostles. It's all a bunch of hogwash because there's nowhere in there that Paul says you're the master and you're the one who decides when things are cut off and you're the one who decides the appropriate time and portion and you're the one that gets to decide what one gift is supposed to look like as opposed to another or how the effects are supposed to look. We want to be a church that opens up the line of communication, that there isn't a doctrinal barrier that causes you from hearing the voice of God so that you can experience the full-fledged gift of the Spirit in your life. We want to break through that barrier so that you feel his presence, so that you know his giftings, and you know what you're called to, that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt how God has placed you and positioned you, that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt how he's gifted you so that in that gifting, you can become an integral part of the body. There are many people that walk into churches and they say, I don't feel my fit. I don't know where I belong. I don't know what God's calling me to. Listen, 
The only way you're really going to know isn't because you volunteer at one station or another. It's not because you volunteer in kids or because you volunteer in hospitality or because you volunteer at the elder or the, with the, with the um, greeters. It's because you know the empowerment. You feel the strength of the empowerment of the gift of God that's on the inside of you. And he helps solidify your station, your puzzle piece within your local body. He creates you as an interdependent member to one another in your local community. If you, ever, if you ever feel like you're estranged and you don't feel like you fit in, I would go back to this idea, how has God empowered you and how are you serving the people? How are you serving the people with the empowerment that God's given you? How are you serving the people with the gift that God's given you? That will lay a foundation for you feeling like you belong. Man, I gotta get done here because we're running out of time. But today... I want to challenge you. Maybe you've never really asked yourself the question. And I don't mean, do you speak in tongues when I say this? I don't mean, do you understand your gifting? And are you going to walk outside and lay hands on every single person you see and they're going to be healed? What I mean is, do you understand the feeling, the motivation, the drive to be spirit-filled? Are you spirit-filled? Some of us are spirit-led. We hear the voice of God and we're led of the spirit but we're not spirit-filled to the extent that we are demonstrating his power in our life and in the lives around us. That we're not sure of how God's gifted us because we're not sure of how God's gifted us. We stand on the sidelines and the potential of the gift that God has seated in your heart lays in waste. We need to come to a place where we ask ourselves, are we really spirit-filled? Now, the Bible talks about this and we'll go over it in some other time. How we lay hands on another person. We expect the Holy Spirit in that moment to come and indwell them. It's a continual concept of filling. Now, you get the Holy Spirit at salvation. You get all of the Holy Spirit. But there's a difference in an endowment of power. There's a difference in an endowment of a gifting. Listen, my dad is my dad is my dad. I am my son's father. I will always be their father. But there's a difference when I go to my boys or my dad comes to me and hands me a gift. It's a different transaction. You know, there are times now my sons are young, so they come to me around their birthday, around Christmas, around holidays, around Flag Day, whatever reason they can. They come to me and they say, Dad, I want a gift. And as a good parent, not Flag Day, but as a good parent, I do my job and I buy something for them. I give them something that I believe will encourage them and, and, and will ultimately lift their little lives up. As a good parent, I give them something and it fills their life. It's a sense of fulfillment, man. Uh, the first time I bought Nash, he was really into the superheroes, and I bought Nash a little, uh, uh, the Flash character. We have a picture of it because it's so cute. We're in the aisles of Toys R Us. We couldn't find a Flash character to save our life. He loved Flash. He was in the Flash. He had to have the Flash. He has a little Flash t-shirt on, but no characters. We walk into the Toys R Us that's now closed on the other side of the river. Walk down the aisle. I see this red figurine. I'm thinking, dear Jesus, I hope that's a Flash. Walk over, pulled off the shelf. It's a Flash. $10 little Flash figurine. I put it in his hands, and there's a sense of fulfillment. Oh, I finally got what I'm after. I finally got what my passion is. I finally have received from my father what I've been looking for. In the same sense, when God endows a gift in your life, when you are spirit-filled in that moment, 
There's a sense of relief that comes. Ooh, I finally got what he's, what he's been seeking to give me. I finally got what I've been asking for. Paul says to seek earnestly, diligently, all the spiritual gifts. There's nothing wrong with you coming up at every single time we have a service, coming up to our prayer partner saying, pray for me, I haven't experienced prophecy. Pray for me, I haven't experienced tongues. Pray for me, I haven't experienced interpretation of tongues. There's nothing wrong with you coming up every single week and asking of your father, God, I want to experience what my brother, what my sister is experiencing. He gives as he sovereignly wills. I didn't give Nash that doll the first time he asked for a flash doll. I couldn't find it. I couldn't have given it to him if I wanted to. It wasn't timing. Timing wasn't right. A little, the little company that makes the, those little plastic molds and a flash doll hadn't created one yet. I couldn't pull one out of thin air. But finally the time came. He asked, Dad, can I get a flash character? And I said, yes, son. And we found one on a shelf, and I gave it to him, and a sense of fulfillment came over him. I don't care how many times you have to ask. There's a timing in which God works that sometimes is beyond our understanding. And when that time comes, he will endow you with what you're asking. But it is for motivation to serve others in which it truly impacts our life. Now, Nash could have kept that flash doll all to himself, kept it locked in a box, kept it locked in its little, in its little case, put it up on the shelf, and no one would have enjoyed it. But what did he do as a little three-year-old boy? He ripped that thing open as fast as he could. The beautiful thing about his little giving nature is that the first time he had a friend over, he had to show him, here's my flash. Look, look, look how cool it is. He got comfortable with his gift, and finally, once he was comfortable, the moment he had a friend in front of him, he showed off that gift. Look what my dad gave me. This is, again, where the church fails at times. God gives us an endowment of power. We get comfortable with it. We just keep it on a shelf. Rather than giving it, extending it to the world around us and watching them be blessed by what God has done in our life, by what God is doing through us, the conduit that we've become. Every time my son handed that doll to another child to play with, he, didn't, he never gave it to them in a sense of he was giving it away. It was always a gift my daddy gave me, but you would enjoy it too. This is how we need to come to understand the gifts that God has put in front of us, the gifts that God has put in our hearts, the endowment of power from the Holy Spirit. Here's my gift, and I've got to share it with the world. So this morning when I ask that tough question, are you spirit-filled, I'm really asking an appropriate question, not just are you led of his voice, but are you filled with his presence? Are you filled to the place that you can't help but give it away? If you're not, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, that's not me. I don't know Jesus like that. I don't know the Holy Spirit like that. There will be folks up here after service to pray with you. They've been taught how to pray. They are good, honest people. They won't ask you to do anything crazy. They'll simply pray and believe with you. And when they pray and believe with you, there is a sense, an understanding, that we know the Spirit of God will hear the prayer, that the Holy Spirit will come and do what he's going to do. Don't resist it. Again, there's effects of the Holy Spirit in our life. Don't resist it. Whatever it is, succumb to it and allow the Holy Spirit to have his way. Allow the Holy Spirit to do what he will because I guarantee you the gift he's about to give you, just like to my son, will be an awe-inspiring moment. God, how did you know I needed that? Because I know you. I know what you've been asking. I've heard your prayers. 
I know the gift I've picked out for you for this time. And when I sovereignly distribute it in your heart and in your life, it'll make all the difference. 